Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're sitting down with Drew Hamilton and Derek Stoneroff. Drew, we've had on the show before. Derek, I've actually had some uh, trips with you in the past, or one trip with you in the past, and that was probably 20 years ago, and then we happened to be on another assignment here, and I thought it was an awesome opportunity to get some like-minded people, especially some bear expert type people on the show to talk about bears and bear viewing in Alaska. So before we get started with Derek, why don't Drew give us, you've been on the show before, but maybe you could just give a little brief introduction as to who you are for people that don't know, and then uh, we'll take send it over to Derek after that. Okay. Well, my name is Drew Hamilton, and I've been a bear viewing guide here in Alaska for the last um, 20 or so years, and uh, specialize in photographers and film crews, and um, I've worked at a bunch of different places, including uh, McNeil River State Game Sanctuary, um, which is the largest congregation of brown bears anywhere on earth. So I was out there for, for six summers, and I'm sure we're going to be talking more about that when we when we start talking to Derek. Um, but it's just great to be back on the show and have a chat. Awesome. Derek, you showed up in Alaska when? Uh, I came up here in 1964, the year of the earthquake. Well, that's got to be it. There's a story there. We'll get back into that. Um, and then what is your history? Because you've done so, I mean, I've heard you over the last couple of weeks talking and just the vastness of the history of what you do is, is so incredible. Just tell me a little bit about yourself so the audience kind of gets to know your background. I've always been interested in bears. My mother and my grandfather came up here in the 30s. And so I heard about it all the time when I was younger and I just sort of waited to come up and I had a chance as an undergraduate undergraduate at college uh, we had to do a thesis so somehow I picked bears and uh, I had a friend that lived in Fairbanks I'd been up here working in the summertime when I was in college in the first couple of years he wanted to go do a film of bears and I wanted to study bears I went out in some forest fires and made some money and we talked to a whole bunch of different people and we decided on a big lake south of here would be the best place to go. And we went in there and we spent three summers in there. Oh, uh, I guess I wasn't married then, but my, the woman that I w- ended up spending the next 60 years with, 50 years with, uh, was with me. And uh, we went out there and just, just watched bears and started some behavioral studies we got I got really interested just mostly for just reading books because I didn't have really anybody to talk to and I uh, found some found out some things we wanted to know about and I took that and that got me into graduate school and I finished that thesis and that got me into graduate school and I got more money for that and then I went to McNeil River and I spent uh, I guess three three summers there and then I sort of did a whole bunch of other stuff and in the early visited down there once or twice my partner uh still went in there he went in there until the mid 80s and then uh, uh i'd visit him every great once in a while and then i ended up uh, uh going to mcneil river a job opened up there in 1990 and i spent the next 10 summers at mcneil river and then around 2000 uh 
I sort of got into bear viewing with one of the people that started it uh, with an airplane. John Rogers, who Drews worked for, and they, they, they worked for him. And I'm, try, I'm trying to think back. Chris Day was that another person that's been right where we're sitting today. She, she and her husband started doing fly-ins. They were working for an air, he was working for an air service, and Chris would get the airplane some days, and other days she could, she'd schedule people, and she couldn't get the airplane. So finally they ended up buying their own airplane, and they started the, really the first regularly scheduled fly-in uh, bear viewing in about, I say about 1999, 1998. And then I worked for them for a while. They'd just let me go out. They'd hire me for any day I wanted to go out, and I did that. And then started a thing called Alaska Bear Quest, and I booked my own trips and did some film crews, sort of just like Drew's, Drew's done today. That sort of brings me up. But I've always been interested in the science aspect of it, and uh, I spent a lot of time in on that. And uh, that's, that's sort of it. Regularly scheduled bear viewing by airplane was only started in, like in the 90s? In the late 90s. I don't know anybody else that did it on a regular basis. People probably fly out to watch bears. But we went, like with John Rogers, some of the first trips that he went on, I think I'd take a little vacation for like four or five days from fishing game and go down there on the waters, which was the fir- first bear viewing boat. S- tell me if I'm correct. I, th- this is my recollection. But John Rogers uh, had a, a boat and he would take people out on. I'm trying to remember the guy that ran it for him. Mike, I can't really remember. It's his, oh, Michael Parks. Michael Parks was it. And we went down to Hallow Bay and... And, and watched bears. And I don't know how many years John had been doing that before, but they invited me to go out with them. To, we were trying to figure out the best way to go about getting close to bears and things like that. Because this whole thing about bear habituation has just changed so dramatically. The bears have gotten more used to people, and people have gotten more used to bears. And things are happening today that people were only imagining <laughs> 30 years ago. It's just, it's all, it, it's, it's changed. And uh, the bears have, the bears have just, been in a lot of areas who've gotten to be more accepting and like at McNeil River uh was different in was a lot different in 1970 than it was when I was there than it was in 1990 when I went back again there's better management and uh the, there's more separation between people and bears and it's like the the falls at McNeil people used to there's a center rock which everybody knows about it the bears and fish go on both sides of it and bears sit on it people used to go out the center rock and film from there which is really hard for a lot of people to believe <laughs> that they ever <laughs> that they ever let anybody do that i so. have trouble just picturing picturing that you know having yeah. sat there for so long and watched how the bears movement and just to be you yeah. know e- even for me that was oh well, you know i wouldn't want to be <laughs> i wouldn't yeah. want to be i've seen those fights go down on that center rock i don't yeah. want to be near that yeah there wasn't as many big males but uh there was uh there, there was, there's, once they, some rules were put in place at McNeil, it, 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 when it became a much better, much better uh, place than, than, than it was. And people used to do whatever the heck they wanted. And that, that's, and the bears responded, you know, the people sort of sitting in regular places and uh, behaving in an acceptable way and not scaring them and things like that. They've sort of learned to, it was all right to be around people I, that's what i think it's it's a, scientifically that's a hard thing to prove but habituation does take place and i always think that these bears around here are programmed to uh share a, a limited food source like where we've been watching them and at neil river or hallow bay 
and uh, uh, the, the bears have certain behaviors that allow them to share that. And that's basically that people became part of the equation at at uh, McNeil. And I guess before we go too much further, there's going to be a large part of the audience that has no clue what McNeil is. So give us a snapshot into what McNeil is. And then my second question is, was that was that created in the 70s as a refuge or was it prior to that? And then give me the evolution of McNeil, too, because it did evolve as time went on, right? So when did that start? And then kind of describe it. And either one of you guys, you both know that. Well, I, you know, I, this is all. So the, the sanctuary came about in 1967 is when it was established through an act of the state legislature. And it was a few legislators who got together and, you know, the quote um, that Clem Tillian likes to say about founding him he just wanted there to be a place where bears could be bears and it's managed by the alaska department of fish and game and it's a lottery system to get in so they take um, 10 people a day into the sanctuary and they've got fish and game staff out there um, a lot of great long-term staff who have been out there and know these bears know the area intimately and it's really great being there because really you're the only 10 people um, in a couple hundred square miles, really. And um, it's a place where you can see, it, it is the largest, it was designed to, to protect the largest congregation of brown bears anywhere on earth. The record, the official record for the most they've seen at one time in a quarter mile stretch of river is 78. Although I have it on good authority that they saw 80 at one point, but it didn't get, uh, it wasn't on the hour, so it didn't count for official records, but there was a, an unofficial 80 count. And it's one of those places where if you're a student of bear behavior, it's fascinating to go. It's where bear biologists go on vacation is, is what I think of it. If you're a student of bear behavior, you can be sitting there. And if you're watching 10, 20, all the way up to 80 bears at once, you see all these fascinating behaviors stacked. You know, you look one direction and there's a fight going on. You look another direction, there's play bout going on or nurse or whatever. It's just it's amazing and how it's all come together. And it's, uh, uh, it's one we've, we've, it's been in the news a lot lately because of the pebble mine, which the, we've done uh, a few shows on that. So thanks to the wild and exposed podcast for helping us get the, get the good word out on that. But it was uh, recently under threat from the, the pebble, uh, pebble project. Um, but it's just, it's a place that should be on everybody's bucket list. So talk to me about the evolution of it, because I read the book. So Larry Allmiller did a book. What's in the title? Of it? In Wild Trust, which is available for purchase at the Friends of McNeil River website. Yes. <laughs> and we'll put a link in the show notes. But as you read through that book, you, you he talks about the evolution of how you guys structured the bear viewing and creating it the most safe environment for the bears and the most safe environment for the people viewing the bears. Describe that because I think there's a lot of people, you might see the pictures from there, but you don't ever see the, the layout of how that goes down. Well, one, one thing they do is it, it, they have a group that goes out. If you go in there, you, you go on a, Drew can correct me if I'm wrong, you, still, you go on a four-day permit. You have four days that you're going to be allowed to go out and see the bears. You see the bears with a group of people. You go to a place where uh, sort of designated areas where the bears are used to seeing people, particularly at the falls where the, where the, there's a falls on the McNeil River, which uh, inhibits the, the, the movement of fish upstream. And the bears know about this, and that's where they congregate, and, and that's where the salmon are accessible on that 
stretch of river, but you sit at the same places at that that. So there's there's a lot of regularity. You're not allowed in the one big area unless you're with somebody with a fish and game. And this <laughs> this this stops misbehavior on the part of a lot of individuals because once people realize that the bears aren't going to bite them, or there's a good chance the bears aren't going to bite them, people really start to push. And there's a lot of there's I'm not signaling out photographers, but a lot of photographers once they realize the shots that they can get, which are nothing like they probably imagined before they got there, they want to have a repeat of that behavior. Then and uh, the fishing game is really kept it, and the staff there really part of your job is to keep a check on that. So, but that I th- think the whole, when we were there, my wife and I were there, and and. Uh, when I did my master's thesis in 1970 and 71, there was there there was none of that, and uh, we sort of t- started tucking people under our arm <laughs> so they wouldn't disrupt what we were trying to find. So we we still that maybe those were some of the first groups that went on. I will say one thing that Klemptillion, who's still alive and lives in Homer, and he's sort of the the. M- he probably he has the, the the most history here of anybody because he's the oldest. He's in in his late nineties at the moment. But one of the reasons he set it up because there was so much shooting by fishermen of McNeil bears, and that's what he thought that they needed another level of of, of protection. So that uh, that's 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 one another reason for the for the creation of of the sanctuary. So do you think he he realized the value of the bears and that the bears don't uh, need to? Be, they're not evil like a lot of the media I, I think portrays I, yeah, them. Clem's a highly intelligent person and that I, I think he probably realized that they that they did need a, a level of protection. And what's what's the name of the first photographer that came in here? Cecil uh, Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes. They, that was in the early, must have been in the early 60s. Yeah. In yeah. that geo they had yeah. a uh, it was yeah. where, well, I forget the name of the article even, but you, yeah. I mean you can still it's find nat- that edition. National Geographic. The place name wasn't given. Because there were no protections in place, and it was, uh, uh, you know, where bears. And so, if you if you've gone to McNeil River recently, and you know you've got all your shots from the the pad or McFit Creek or things like that, it was interesting to go back and look at, you know, the first Cecil Rhodes images and say, oh, he went down there, <laughs> or he was he was upstream a little bit. I, I know where that angle is. So it's 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 kind of fun to to dig out that old uh, issue. Yeah. One thing one thing during the '60s. They were tagging and marking a lot of bears in here for a variety of reasons. There were several different studies, but a lot of it was movement studies. A lot of it, they, early drugs, you know, it used to be, uh, they didn't, everybody didn't know the best way to drug a bear. That went on there. And I, I guess the last, we took the collars, the last collars off that we could find in 1971. And that improved things drastically. Nobody was chasing bears. It used to be if a bear walk by the group and there's a somebody there with a dart gun to try to dart it so that 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 changed things quite a bit but i'd heard about mcneil and i heard i knew i was a biologist for a fishing game named lee glenn they were they were marking bears down here a couple weeks each year and uh so i knew about it and (laughs) i I, even at that time i didn't want to come here then i i it would have been a great place to do a bear study and i realized i could have got a lot seen a lot more encounters which is what i was really looking for between how different bears displayed at each other and communicated with each other but uh i realized that i didn't want to be a part of the uh (laughs) 
this marking thing that was what's going on here. And of course, later on, later on, I was, but uh, that's why I picked another spot that's south of here. Where we didn't see anybody for three months. There, nobody else came up there except in the fall. Guys in the village, which was about oh, 60, 70 miles away, they come up and go moose hunting in the fall. And that, that that was about it. The, 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 so it was it was nice. You see a bear and <laughs> you want to spend go spend the day with him. The, nobody else is going to come get between you and the bear or scare the bear away or anything like that. So but tell me about your mindset then when you're out there by yourself and, you know, everybody is educated almost to think that bears are evil and mean and they're going to run you down. Obviously, that's not the case. What was your mindset initially when you started going out and doing these studies and you're out there all alone by yourself and you don't have anybody to come rescue you? I mean... I'd never even seen a, I'd never even seen a bear, brown bear when I started. <laughs> <laughs> so neither either my friend Howard Bass he'd never seen one either. So we just sort of winged it. And but I I I wrote a lot of this up. I was writing a book about bears, and uh, you just you get to a, a point, you know, that you, if if you're going to do it, you got to do it. Right. And so we, instead of you're sitting next to a creek, I I like I had like a study area along a creek and. It was this my little study area, but it I, you know, wrote about what areas it encompassed. It was basically a creek that the fish could go up about oh, a mile, mile and a half, and then there was a waterfall, and they couldn't go any farther. So I every day I'd get up and walk, walk that creek, and I'd walk it in the morning and the afternoon. And I had these little spots that I'd stop and see what was happening. I'd write it in my notebook, but uh, after a while you just got to. <laughs> Instead of moving back every time a bear comes by, which we sure did in the beginning, or trying to find a place where you could sit and watch the creek and the bears weren't going to come up behind you and everything like that, every once in a while you just have to sort of decide that you're going to sit there when the bear comes up. And then after you do that, then it's it's okay. And and then it, I just always I've always been able to after that to do it. But I was you know just like everybody else. <laughs> I mean they were big and didn't quite know what they were going to do and. You know, one one thing that happened one day that I was there though is Jay Hammond, who ended up being the governor of Alaska, who uh, I'm a great admirer of his. Sadly, he's passed on. He was a great friend of the conservation too. He came in there. He had a lodge up in Lake Clark, which is I don't know, hundred hundred miles north of where we were, hundred fifty miles north. And he came down there with a couple of a, a father and son that were. Uh, uh, staying at his lodge and he was taking a fishing and Jay was a great pilot and he, he came down and landed and uh, I was like looking at him and he said oh, we're going to go look at some bears and uh, takes the, the father and son and they go up and spend the day just the same doing it basically the same thing I was doing it I sort of had he's been doing this for a long time and he's there so that was sort of like an eye opener that uh, that you know this is you know what other people are doing I just didn't know him and I, I imagine some of the other lodges were probably doing it at that time, too. So it's just sort of great to see Jay. He was just totally relaxed. Had him with him, went, sat on the bat, bank, and, the, and he hadn't been in there for that year. And the bears just were in front of him and just sort of like what we do today. And I, all of a sudden, I realized that, you know, a lot of, most of the stuff, imagine it, it, the animosity with bears is sort of just in your head. You know, you carry all this baggage into the field with you, and it's, it's hard to dispel yourself of it. And so that's a lot of it's media and, and Hollywood yeah, oh, driven, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, and the guide industry and your neighbors and 
you can, it's, it's really hard to explain some of this stuff to people. How, how do you really know that? They don't know. I read it in a book or that's what everybody says. You know, it's just there's no basis for it. Once you really start realizing, you start questioning them where this belief came from, you know, if they'll keep talking to you. It, uh, Jay Hammond does reference McNeil River in his autobiography, Bushrat Governor. Um, which you can usually find in the used bookstore, but he he talks when he's 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 talking about the the things the majesties of Alaska and and things that impressed him or or, or drew him to Alaska, and one of the the sites that he mentions in that list it was flying over McNeil River and, and counting bears in at, at the falls as something that stuck out in Jay Hammond's mind as the majesty of Alaska, and so. You know, I read that before I started getting into bears too, and and so that was one of the things that stuck McNeil River in in my brain. But Derek, I wondered, do you remember? So you're going out there, and you've got you've read some books, and <laughs> you get dropped off in the middle of nowhere. Do you remember? You you, you talked about kind of the epiphany with with uh, Jay Hammond and how you you know maybe these bears aren't what you thought, or uh, but do you remember your first bear encounter? I can remember the first bears we saw on that trip because we didn't fly in. We didn't have a whole bunch of money. And we, we, we went to Igigik and the people in Igigik. Were, and the reason we went to Igigik was a friend of a guy that we knew who went to college and university in, in Fairbanks. Uh, that's where he was from. And that gave us a tip off of where to go. He said there was lots of bears there. But no, we... We had this old ratty uh, set net skiff, and actually the guy there lent us an outboard motor. <coughs> and it, I just remember because it's it's a big epic trip. If if you're from the East Coast, I'm from the East Coast, and there's a river you have to go up, and rapids you have to go through, and then Lake Bashiroff is just a huge. I here we go. Lake Bashiroff is a huge lake, or this this lake is a huge lake, and uh, I just remember going down it, and there's a place called Gas Rocks, which the water bubbles out there. The, there's just the whole fa- thing is just being young and having this big adventure, and it, we made it be an adventure. I mean, we could have had a float plane going in there, but except we didn't have any money. But uh, uh, the first two bears we saw were on that, but that wasn't really an encounter. But they looked at us. We went over and tried to get closer to them, and they they moved away. So I guess that's an encounter. It was <laughs> it an encounter. For, it, it was counts. an encounter for the bears. You know, we saw them and went in there and thought, oh, we just get on the shore there and <laughs> and take a closer look. And that was wrong. We should have just gone a little bit more slowly. But then, I think the the most of the part, the 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 first encounters were sort of running the skiff into the shore. Again, we didn't know what we didn't know what we could get, but we were also trying to get movies, films. So there was two of us doing two things. It it sometimes sometimes I go by myself, and that was a whole different deal. But when I was with my friend who was making trying to make a film about him, he uh, uh, we just run the script skip up on the shore between the salmon streams and or next to a salmon stream and sort of hang out by the skiff which i guess made you feel just a tiny little bit secure because that you know it, after a while the, bear, the bears habituate to people really really well and i think the trick here and again is bears habituate to people the same way they habituate to each other i mean a bear is not going to go invent a different language to deal with you he's going to use the language that he knows and i think that's uh they have to habituate to share these, these these food sites, which is what peninsula bears do, and uh, so they're gonna they're gonna feel the same way about th- they're gonna treat you the same way as they're treating another bear. I mean, they might get in. We watch them here, and bears sort of look and go around and everything else like that. But they uh, they get used to you really quickly because they 
that's how they make a living. They've they got to get they got to get their food for the whole year in a limited food site. And this place, they uh, there's not very many bears there. If you go there in the springtime, I went back there a couple times in the 80s in the springtime. There's very very few bears because they're probably over on this side of the peninsula. We know from marking studies that there's a certain amount of movement from the uh, eastern side of the peninsula to the western side when the uh, red salmon come in. And uh, at the lake that we were at, there was no, there was, uh, the Bristol Bay red salmon w were the main major food in there. There's not a lot of food in there. And there's not a lot of sedge grazing uh, like other places. So. so people ask me all the time, you know, because they'll see a picture of a bear that I've got or whatever, and they'll be like, that looks awful close. Aren't you scared? And my response is always, these bears are in here fishing. I am not a food source. I am not. They don't even want to deal with me. They have one thing on their mind, and that's filling their bellies and, and preparing for this, the year, right? So that's a whole different set of circumstances than if you're in with an inland grizzly at Denali National Park or something like that, right? So that's a lot of the reason why these areas are so predictable and, and what, 90% safe, 95% safe? Well, I mean, you, when you're talking about safety and you look at the, the safety rector, record of the, the guided bear viewing industry, and it's, I mean, most indri industries on earth would love to have a safety record as good as the the guided bear viewing industry. And, you know, people always throw Timothy Treadwell's name out there and just, I always say, oh, so you can name <laughs> name the one person in the hundred year, or the two people in the the hundred year history of Katmai Park, you know, that were were killed by bears and that wasn't even on a guided you know, that was his own that was his own doing kind of thing. And so um it is something that people can can rest assured that they're they're going into a safe situation and 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 really it is it's fascinating to watch the uh the process people go through over you know, if say you're out on the coast for, for four days and and watching the change in people and day one you know you're you're thinking back to all those things you read in the, the books and uh oh got bear right out the window there anyway um all those things that you read in books or in outdoor life magazine running around in your head and then you're so nervous on day one and day four you know you almost get people tend to get a little almost cavalier and so you have to stop and remind people that the rules that applied on day one which are there you know for the bears ability to go safety and to be go about their business unmolested the rules that apply on day one still apply on day four or 21 or 20 years later 50 years later the same rules still apply and uh but it, it's it's watching people get immersed in this experience and suddenly like nobody nobody knows what time it is you're you're you know you know the tide stage better than you know what your wristwatch is going to tell you you know what the east wind means you know what the west wind means kind of thing and, and it's 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 people certain people <laughs> not everybody uh, eases into it and after a couple days it just feels you know you see the pictures and and you know, I guess the best explanation to people is, well, it, it makes sense at the time. You had to be there <laughs> kind of thing. And it's just so hard to tell from a picture what's actually going on there because, you know, photo photographers are cherry picking the one where the bear is looking right at you. Or things. You know how hard it is to get a picture of a bear looking right at you? 
Like, it's hard. <laughs> you have to sit there, and like, particularly if they're grazing, and they'll be chomp, 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 and then you get this millisecond where they look at you at the corner of their eye, and then they go back to grazing because they're, they got business to do. They're, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we we started throwing some names around, like, uh, John Rogers and uh, folks like that, and um, I was wondering, Derek, do you know the the kind of the catalyst that got John and Will Troyer and folks like that going out to places like the Katmai Coast? What took them out there? Uh, uh, first time I heard about how the first place they went was Hallow Bay. It's far as far as I know. The first time we went up Switchhack Bay with Will Troyer, the, all the bears ran away from us. But there was a Kenton Ward who. Uh, was a photographer at those days. He went down to Hallow Bay and watched the bears clamming down there. There used to be a lot of clamming when there was razor clams down there. That, that's the first I heard of it. And he swore everybody, I'm not telling you where, where I went. I'm not telling you where I went to see these bears. And I don't know who flew him in there. He went in on an airplane. And I, I, I don't know. And uh, he, he swore everybody to silence. And that's sort, of, that's sort of the first that I'd heard about bear viewing on the Katmai Coast. But I don't know any, you know, Dave knows people from Kodiak and stuff like that. I'm not quite sure who who came over and who who didn't come over. So that but was, yeah, and I, yeah. I can remember stories about Ken and Ward doing that sort of thing. One more thing about McNeil and the bears and watching the bears. People get to know the individual bears at, at McNeil. That's one thing that happens. And there's a life history of a lot of these bears that people know because they're recognized and it's become really really important and i think human trust to some bears is uh greater or it's, it's greater for some bears than it is for others it's and whether this is good bad or indifferent i, I don't know how the those bears would act in a some bears would act one way in a stressful situation and some bears in, a, in another way but we used to every night and i'm sure when drew worked there too the same thing everybody would if there was a, a bear that was acting weird or something like that you know everybody would talk about it or but also it would say oh, i saw you know teddy today and she had three cubs worth that's really cool because she didn't have any cubs last year or, or she always has three cubs or now she's down to two and that's the, that's the great thing about mcneil and you can go back the next year and Bears live a long time, and some of those bears have been seen every summer for more than 20 years, and some of them might even, if it went back 30 years when I was there, they, you know, a bear can live to be 35 years old, so conceivably a bear had been seen every summer there for 30 years of its life or, or, or more. So there's, there's not only history for people, there's history, <laughs> history for bears. They keep coming back to the exact same place. Well, we just got the report earlier this year that Ears, the bear from the viral video, it turned 30. You know, they they don't have known ages on all of them, but he happened to be uh, collared in a in a study. When, what year was Sean? It was like 2006. Sean and Karen did the study out there, and so they pulled the tooth, got the exact age, and so they have the record, the exact records on him, and he's come back, and this is his 30th uh, 30th year. Yeah. <laughs> But the one thing, it, it, it's not all roses at McNeil. Those bears, the McNeil Sanctuary does not protect the bears' uh, entire home range, home range being where you're likely to find the bear. Those bears move in, in and out of the sanctuary. The sanctuary does not have all the life requirements for a bear. It's a, it's a place where the bears come to get chum, chum salmon for the month of, you know, basically the month of July, maybe a couple of weeks of July, and then they're moving somewhere else. And unfortunately, 
know, you used to look at the numbers of bears that came in there every year. And tell me if I'm, I stand to be corrected on this, but every year there was a hunting season, which is every other year, and this game management unit we're on, the population would sort of level out. There wouldn't be any more bears this year, that year. And then when there wasn't a hunting season, you see a slight increase, but it go back and forth. So, And we know from the bears that we marked, not we, I should say the fishing game marked, in the 60s and the 70s, some of those were killed in a place where Dave goes to Katmai Preserve. And uh, it's un- unfortunate, but there's movement into, hun- in, into hunted areas, and some of these bears are, are, are killed. And it's... It's been my experience. It's not very hard to kill a brown bear if that's w- if if that's what you want to do. It's not. There's not a whole bunch of sport involved. And talking to guides and stuff, the hardest part always seems to be is getting the hunter to the bear because a lot of them aren't in very good shape, or bad weather. <laughs> Those are the two things that sort of make the bear hunt, you know, difficult. But it's unfortunately, I you know, I'd like to see the where we're sitting right now be added to the sanctuary and just gradually make the area of protection bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it can encompass the whole home range of these bears. Some of them do stay in protected areas that go right from McNeil right into the Katmai National Park proper. But I always figure it's when they're done eating salmon, it's which way they turn. You know, if they go, if they go south, they're going to go into Katmai and eat red salmon. And uh, if, that, if they do go to the other side, they're going to... Uh, be protected there. If they go the other way, they're going to go to a place where there's a fall hunt every other year. So. Well, let's do, I have two questions. So can you describe a home range and what that entails? Because you've got, I'm sure food sources, I know food sources are what dictates that. And secondly, I think hunting is given a lot of precedent in Alaska because it's an economic resource, right? It's an economic generator. But I don't think people realize what kind of economic generator bear viewing is, and it can rival or even supersede some of this hunting stuff. So I think we should talk about that a little bit and just kind of throw the numbers out there as far as, and I don't know if you guys even know exact numbers, but I'm sure, Drew, you've done enough research that you could speak to that. Well, funny you should mention (laughs) economic (laughs) generator. So we did, uh, we did have a, a look, a study was, was done by the University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, a couple of years ago during this, during the pebble fight. You know, we needed to quantify like what, what we do, you know, it, it comes back to like so many things comes back to dollars and cents. And, uh, when you look at, at job creation and you look at, at total value to, uh, a, well, we, we were looking for South Central Alaska really on what, what it was generating, and it was bringing in about $40 million a year to just the very specific location of South Central Alaska and generating just short of uh, 400 jobs, uh, direct jobs. And so when you look at that and then you, you look at the, you know, and this wasn't included in the study, but one of the things I always look at is, well, what, is, what does it mean for just Alaska's identity? to have places like how much how much money did the Disney Bears movie gross? How many people came to Alaska because they saw such and such bear? And, oh, that's a place where I can go see bears. Like it 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 draws people in, it brings people in to stay in hotels, to eat in restaurants, to hire a guide, to um, you know, they'll do a fishing charter, things like that. It's it's part of our diversified tourist economy. And I think a lot of the uh, 
traditionally, you know, you, you manage for, for populations. You know, if, if you're looking at, you know, sustained harvest and, and things like that um, to manage populations for, for hunting, um, you look at it in a very specific way. And you can say, yes, these populations are, are healthy. Uh, but then the bear viewing industry or the wildlife viewing industry in general doesn't necessarily require you know, the same population, but it requires individuals. It requires these individuals that you can go back and see year after year, whether it's the McNeil bears, whether it's the Brooks Explore.org webcam bears, um, things like that. Those specific bears are generating, you know, they're, they're hitting above their weight in terms of dollars and cents on what they're, what they're bringing in. So you've got two, two different needs in, in those two different industries kind of thing and i think there's some kind of built-in tensions in, in the wildlife management of, of of these bears uh, just based on that and so there is there is conflict between the two industries but when they when you really look at it and i don't have my laptop in front of me but i do have the the study that fish and game put out in like 2011 looking at the total uh brought in by the different industries and residents break it down into residents and non-residents and things like that and it was i mean the, the viewing industry in both residents and non-residents uh, generated just so much more money than the the hunting industry which is in direct competition um, and then we look at how uh how our regulations are decided upon here in the state of alaska and you know you'd like to think it so often gets presented as, oh, you know, science and this and that. But what people don't realize is there's a there's a political buffer between actual management and the science. And so it's got to go through this board of of politically appointed folks that, you know, they're not looking at things like that. They're they're looking at, well, what does my buddy need or, or things like that? It's very, uh, very political. It's very it's very politically driven, and uh, you know it, it, the board is is completely made up of people in extractive industries. You know, so it's hunters and trappers. There's not a single uh, bear viewing guide or wildlife viewing guide or non-extractive industry. Uh, there's not a single representative on on that board. So you're kind of at their mercy, so to speak, and it gets frustrating. Well, and I look at it a whole different way, too. I mean, you look at the lower 48 and you look at bear management and or wildlife management and there's limited space, right? The more populated we get, the more habitat is taken away and the harder it is to manage a population. You look at white-tailed deer, for example. I mean, there's so many white-tailed deer in so many spots that it causes so many problems and it's because they can't manage it properly. There's not enough natural habitat, so they're they're moving into the cool thing about alaska is there is this space so do we want to preserve something that has everlasting kind of you know if you take a home range and well, let's get back to that as far as what a home range is but <laughs> that was the original question yeah. wasn't it oh, but do you want is how important it is it for generations from now to be able to see this whole uh this whole preservation of an area like that where we can't necessarily do i mean you've got yellowstone which obviously is a huge chunk of property and it does encompass that sort of a thought process but there's very few areas in the lower 48 that 
would accommodate that kind of thing. So if you look at it from any, even a higher level than economic generation or any of the local politics or anything like that, I mean, it's what what value can you put on that? Yeah, I couldn't even start to do that math. You know, it's right. But there is, there are people who can who can look at you know existence values and things like that right. that that are starting to be used in in policy making. Not here. <laughs> but in other places, they're starting to to use those in policy making decisions and things like that, and, and and identifying the different ways that people can use the the resource. And you know, so much when you're coming at it from a perspective where you know there's a lot of talk of you know predator control, and you look at what's going on in in uh, Montana and Idaho and things like that right now, and you know there's all this hullabaloo about it, but it's really like in my mind, getting all worked up about the seventh or eighth most important thing <laughs> on the on the list of things to be concerned with, and you you hit the the big one, particularly for the lower forty eight, is is habitat fragmentation and and just the number of of people that are going into you know encroaching on these wilderness areas, being you know these little boxed in areas now that. Are being loved to death. They're being loved to death. And so, you know, you, you've got so many more other issues to deal with before you have some legislature step in and say, oh, it's all the wolves. We need to 90% reduce our wolf population by 90%. you got way bigger problems right. <laughs> than, than having some extra wolves. <laughs> so we bring up a problem, right? Or we bring up something that needs to be looked at. What What are the steps to do that? I mean, just getting one voice on a board like that. What is the board up here called? It's called the, or the commission. What is The board of game. Board of game. I mean, even if there was, I mean, I don't know that that one person would be looked at very favorably, but if you had one person, one voice that was on the non-consumptive side, that's a start, right? Is And how does that happen? Or is it anything that can be pushed by the public or is it? It's definitely something that could be pushed. You got it. There's a couple of different things going on. And I wish Dave had a headset on here because, he, well, you know about this. We get back to Jay Hammond, but when the Alaska Native Land Claim Settlement Act was done in what year was that? That would have been like 71 seven, or two. Yeah, say late 60s, early 70s. I don't know the specific date. A lot of land was set aside. There was a lot of Alaska Conservation Society, a lot of conservation groups up there. They set up literally millions of acres that were set aside to have for special use. I mean, like like a refuge right here. The refuge here is open to hunt, can be open to hunting by the uh, game, board of game if, if, if it's, that's what they want to do. But uh, there's also land protection. There's protection on the lands within uh, the refuge. If you want to drill oil here or cop, mine copper or something like that, there's a lot of hoops that you have to go through, and which would hopefully keep people out. But it has added levels of protection. And so do these areas that, like the Katmai Preserve. They, instead of... Exp they ex expanded, at that time they expanded Katmai National Park, the bar borders for it, and they added the preserve. The preserve has certain restrictions on it. It's federal land that the land outside of it doesn't. And uh, there was certain, <laughs> it's at it, that point the hunters wanted their say, say too. So it, uh, it's open to, still open to hunting. And it has certain, it, but it has a restrictive uh, 
Uh, only two guides are allowed in there. It has special use for the guides, and there's a, supposed to be a limit on how many bears are killed there, whether anybody adheres to that or not. I don't know. It, it, it like the guides can take so many bears, but the public can go in there and take as many as they want. There's all kinds of dichotomies, but dichotomies that like that. But one thing, getting into management of these special areas, we are still at the at the time in in history where we're managing for populations. The, manage, the idea of managing for individuals, like individual bears or like the individual bears at McNeil River, is something that's really, it just doesn't work in, in wildlife management on a, on a state level. It just, populations are great. They populate, this is gay management area, uh, unit nine, and it's, they have a, it's managed for brown bears. It's, this, it's managed for sustainable populations of brown bears, so you can go in there and shoot 400 every hunting season. The only way they're going to tell if something bad is happening in uh, in uh, uh, in game management unit nine is did the amount of bears that are killed or it's going to go down. So they're going to say, oh, we were shooting 400, and we're down to 300. The population probably isn't what we thought it was, so we're going to cut back on the hunting for a year, or p- make permit hunting some way so we can build the population up. That's basically the way this place is managed, and it's not because the biologists. There's some really dedicated biologists in game management unit nine, and uh, but that's the way this that's the way that's the way you manage stuff. It's, it's the process, right? It's just what it's we've pro- done. It's, and it's the process just, and slow it down because that's the only way they really know how to do. You know, there's a gold mine in McNeil's. If McNeil was if if you had a private area like McNeil, I wouldn't even guess how much money you could make off in the summertime. And there's other places that you could have a closed area. The state could say this area is closed. We're going to have a bear viewing area right there, and we're going to have concessionaires, or we're going to put up, uh, you know, people in there. And it, it's, it would work that if, if, that's what the, if that's what we wanted to do. And I'd like to see that in the future. I'd, I'd like to see more McNeils. And they're not going to have as much, because we talked about this the other day, when you take people out, you try to meet their expectations, but you're setting the expectations up. And we were one time uh, I flew in with some other people and some people from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service trying to see if there would be bear possi- possibilities bear viewing on the Kenai in areas where there's not a whole bunch of people. And we picked up a Russian lake and we went in there and we figured out, you know, maybe you'd have to do it out of towers and maybe you're only going to f- see four or five bears a day because it's, it's, it's brushy and everything else like that. And we're trying to figure out a way to watch the bears, not have them get habituated to, to people because those, a lot of those bears go into Sterling and go into uh, ha- other areas uh, for other other times of the year for, for their other needs. So you don't want to have a bear that's like we've been seeing here for the last couple of days that's going to come down and sit next to you. Someone, uh, one of those bears from the Upper Russian goes <laughs> to the campground at the where it comes into the Kenai or goes to Sterling and, and sit, goes down and sit next to somebody, somebody's just going to kill it, you know. So we were trying to avoid that. And uh, there are other, but the, the point is, if you flew people in there and said, we're probably only going to see four or five bears and you're going to get to see them fish just a little bit and it's brushy, people are going to look at this, this is great, man, I'm all excited. When, when are we going to go? You know, when are we going to get there? And if you're not promising them, 25 bears that are going to come sit next to you or anything like that and you're meeting their expectations and this is this is just really 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 important to to be able to do that and i think if you had these other areas and identified and say what you're likely to see there people are going to 
come. People are going to fly into them. People are going to stop in their boats. And it's it's a big state. We don't know all the places. We're always talking about where else can we go where there's not so many people, you know. And uh, I I think there's a tremendous future in it. That, that and I, and I hope it's happening right now. It's 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 better now than it used to be. Really, and I think so. The level of McNeil's McNeil's is as good as we can imagine right now. I mean, as people can imagine to make it, it's not as good as not as good as I can imagine. But uh, and but and there's other places, and some of access is a problem. How long people want to be in an airplane? You know, where you can put where you can put your park your boat safely and with a deep with a deep anchorage it, that's that's all important but there are other places and there are other bears and the, the bears are there and it i just think you know just possibly we could we could do more of it and in some places it's, it's federal land in some places it's state land and some places it's native land and the natives you know when they under anilka when they did the selected their million acres so we could build the alaska pipeline uh they uh They've got some great salmon streams and some, some some great places where there are bears, and they could make it an exclusive area. They can they can just say, okay, no more hunting on this in, in this area right here. Uh, if you go out, you got to go out with one of our employees, and there's just there's a, there's a lot of money making opportunities out there if, if that's what people want to do. Drew, what, didn't what, you say that one of the biggest uh, Bristol Bay Native Corporation. Okay, yeah. Take yeah, it from that. Bristol Bay Native Corporation, in a lot of ways, is the uh, the biggest player in the bear viewing game. And I don't even know if they realize it yet, but I'm, I'm sure they, they will. <laughs> uh, it, it, because they own Brooks Lodge, and they own Katmai Air. And, and, you know, they bought it specifically for, you know, job creation for, for locals and things like that. And I think as that... Um, you know, as they, it's just been a few years that they've, they've owned it, but I think as they, they see the, uh, the opportunities for conservation and how that, you know, a lot of ways bears in the bear viewing industry represents kind of the, uh, I think of it as a place where uh, ecology and economy overlap, where you can have these intact ecosystems and intact home ranges, which we still haven't answered that question <laughs> what is a home rate we'll get back we yeah, promise we're gonna we'll get, get back, back to that, that. Yeah. um but I, I i think they're gonna see some some definite benefits coming out and hopefully that'll expand and it's been fascinating to watch you know i've been doing this for 20 years and just in the time i've been doing it watching the industry mature you know it used to be you know flying out to super secret areas in plane and swearing everybody to secrecy and things like that. And then now what you've seen develop is a, is a, a mature uh, bear viewing industry that encompasses the, we'll call it the recreation opportunity spectrum. You know, if you've got visitors coming to Alaska, you've got the whole gamut. You've got people coming off cruise ships. You've got the, the white tennis shoe crowd. You've got, you know, photographers. You've got, you know, legit adventurers and everything in between. And then if you look at the bear viewing industry, matches that so there there is an opportunity for somebody that you know you're 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 bringing the grandkids to alaska and you just want to you know instill some values <laughs> in your grandkids and take them out to see bears and wilderness and things like that there are ways you can do that if you want the fully immersive bear experience if you like bring on that sideways rain you know what we can do that 
<laughs> and 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 everything in between. You can watch from platforms. You can watch from the ground. You can you know short flights, boats, float planes. Like there 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 is something for everyone in the bear viewing industry currently. I can and and even you know it's expanded more more niches and things like that. Um, and it's come just so far in the last. 50 years, 20 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's constantly refining and we're getting better and better at um, uh, lessening our impact on bears and things like that. And it's a process, you know, it's not perfect, uh, but it is uh, constantly improving, I think. Just getting back to the, the home range, and then I got a couple of things around <laughs> okay. that. So you, you want a discourse on it? Well, but here's 25 words or less? No, no, let's go whatever it takes. But you said manage for the individual. That essentially would manage for the individual, right? Because if yeah. you're going to manage for the individual, you are going to have to encompass that whole home range, yeah. which is what, what is a home yeah. range? Bears are not, we're going to start with territorial, territoriality. Bears are not territorial. Being territorial means that, this is what I think, bears are uh, not territorial. Being territorial means that you're defending a set piece of real estate. Wolves are territorial. They mark and keep other wolves out of the area where they're living. Bears have a personal space, like most other animals, that they will defend. You know, be getting in your face or something like that. That's that's a whole different that's a whole different deal than being territorial. Territory, set piece of real estate, exclude others of your species out of that set piece of real estate. A home range is not a bear. It, the bears didn't come up with a definition for home range people did the way i describe home range is where you're likely to find that animal within that home range are the life requirements that that bear needs to exist throughout the year throughout the year danning site food site mating site all those sites are in there however animal bears uh might extend their home range. Some bears have small home ranges. Females tend to be smaller than, than males, and for a variety of reasons, I guess. And occasionally we hear a bear that was in, in Seward, was in Fairbanks. You no, know, I mean, they travel a lot, and they extend their home ranges. And this is one unique thing about bears. Bears are, brown bears are the most successful terrestrial mammal that we know of. They've colonized or utilized areas from the Atlas Mountains in Africa all the way to Sonora, Mexico. They're different sizes and shapes and everything else like that, but they tend to keep exploiting the, the area that, that, that they're in. So, But a home range is, usually you can define it. You know, when they put a collar on a bear, the, this is where the bear is most likely to be found. But it's not to say that a sub-adult is you know, has family pressures or something like that and can't live there and moves away and then maybe it'll come back again. But they're mostly, they start with a, with a fairly localized area where their mothers lived because their bears stay with the, uh, their mothers much longer than, than, than most animals, you know, anywhere from two and a half to three and a half and sometimes even longer than that. So there's a, and they're long lived. And, you know, if, 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 if everything you need is right close to home, they don't, go boogieing off to a, another area. Although a small percentage of them are going to do it. You know, they're in, they're, the bears are individual. We want to manage individuals, but the, the bears are individuals. And I, what I, you look at their brown eyes, you guys were trying to take a picture of their, their eyes. What's going on in their eyes? <laughs> eyes, eyes. 
<laughs> I still don't know. I, I've just been, I always imagine that when you're, when you're looking at you and, and uh, or you're, you're trying not to look at them or whatever. But I, I don't know what's going on in there. I just, we were thinking the other, the other day, it just would really be cool to put a heart monitor and Drew suggested an Apple Watch. So, <laughs> so what, what looks stressful to us is that stressful to a bear. We, I, don't, I don't have a clue if their heart rate's going up or if there's just something they're doing all day long. Right. So that, I, I don't know. You watch the big males at McNeil, and you figure if, if, if it was really stressful, their hearts would just explode after a <laughs> while, you know, because they're, they're going after encounter after encounter after encounter. And, and that's when uh, I think when you look at home range studies, like somebody that's going out and saying, we're going to study the home range of brown bears. I think a, a standard for that is they, the, say they have a collar on it and you take the furthest extent of all of your, your data points and then you take the inner 80% of the total extent that they went and that could be considered technically, that would be considered their home range. Yeah, that sounds good. And then, uh, and then the bear that was, or the, the bear that was in uh, uh, Denali National Park <laughs> appears, you know, 300 miles west i don't know if it's a walkabout or what what the deal there, is there's always going to be an anomaly right yeah there and are and whether it's and a person or a wolf yeah. or a bear yeah. or a whale or whatever so a home range is it's fairly arbitrary but it but it's basically meeting the life requirements for that bear and some of these males are going to go a long way i mean you fly over here in the springtime and you go up over the call you fly over the call in the mountain there's bear tracks going all the way up all the way down the other side what what who he could have walked around on the beach, but they they went up they went up over the over the top of the mountain. There's there's up way up Douglas. There's 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 tracks up there. So can you do we do you have anything else on that? Well, I was just uh, and talking about that and the the home ranges, you know, that are crossing mountains and and things like that. And one of the things that really was driven home by that during the the pebble fight was. Um, just how connected, whether it's via bears or what at weather patterns, whatever, just how connected the Cook Inlet and the Bristol Bay systems are, you know, because there was there were so many things we were talking about. Oh, the bears are going back and forth, and um, and then you know we wanted, we talked a lot about a Mactadori, and that's the I think of that as the the pressure release valve between those two weather systems, and and just you know, on a map, there's a line of mountains that you think, oh, you know, they're one goes this way, one goes this way, but there's so much connectivity between the two two places. And you even look back through human history and people going back and forth and things and even now, <laughs> you know, how many people that are <laughs> fishing Bristol Bay or you know, they keep their boats on the Cook Inlet side and they'll take them over there kind of thing. Like it's those th those two systems are just so connected in my mind and it's really become apparent in the last few years just how connected they are. Yeah. And you really see the importance of Hallow Bay these coast these coastal sedge meadows mcneil mcneil has the finest looking sedge that i've ever seen it's it's it's, it's, it's really good it's not as and nearly as big as uh hallow bay and it probably doesn't have the the varied plant life but you see the importance of th uh the, these these coastal areas where bears can come in the springtime and there's green up and there's a, that's where mating takes a lot of mating takes place not all of it but a lot of mating takes place so you can see that uh this is going to appear in the home range of 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 uh, a lot of different animals. They're going to they're going to come into come into this spot. It also points towards the importance of protecting these areas. I think that's a limited resource. These these open areas with with green up and stuff that's good for a bear in the springtime. 
in the springtime. So it's just one more area for, for coastal protection. You, you, you're going to, I think if you start doing, you can start limiting the population, like the Kenai, if you can just imagine all the coastal zones that probably had a lot of bears on them. You can imagine how many bears you could get in the mouth of the Kenai River. That's extensive in the Kasilov, you know, even, even the Anchor. And the head of Ketchumac Bay, there. I'm sure it, it, at times past there was lots more bears out there than there are right now. There's not a room for them. In in some places, they go down there, they're going to get chased out or harassed or whatever. And if you go to the mouth of Ketchumac Bay, you're going to be in, in there with the cattle. And it seems to people that have cows <laughs> don't seem to want to have bears at the same time. Bears like to chase cows, so. <laughs> First, but they uh, don't. They don't as much as they, they could. There's not hardly any predation up there. And the, I don't know if the... I don't know the whole story for everything, but yeah, they're just, it just, it's, it, it turns into a conservation. What's good for bears is, 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 is good for everybody. You know, that's, I think the way it, it comes They're you know, a real good indicator of a healthy environment. If you have bears there, so I think it's, it's pretty cool. First bear I ever saw on Kodiak Island turned out to be a cow. <laughs> we were, we were, we had just gotten there. We we're all excited to be on Kodiak and we we're driving around and my buddy spotted, oh, there's Brown and. Oh, wait, it's a fence. Oh, wait, it's somebody's. Oh, no, that's a cow. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because you see bears on sedge flats, and if you get a bunch of sub-adults running around together, they look like a little <laughs> herd of cows running around. And they're eating grass just like a cow would, and if you just took a quick glance, you'd be like, oh, well, there's yep. six or seven or eight cows over there. <laughs> yeah, and they're all being social with each other. You know, that's a, that's a, there's, a, there's probably a lot of sociability that takes place on the, in those sedge flats. <laughs> so... A couple more things. Can you, you talked a little briefly in, in the first part of the conversation about the studies you were doing. So when you would go to the pad at McNeil and you would be with your visitors, you were also doing collecting data, right? What was the, what kind of data are you collecting and what was that or was that used for? Uh, my, my, what I'm most interested in is bear behavior and how bears communicate with each other. I haven't done much of it lately at all. But that's always been my area of fascination, how they how do they get along and how they, you know, we can't tell too much about scent communication. There's not a whole bunch of studies on that. But so I, I look at vi visual signals that they give to each other to sort of clue the other bear in because I think there's a lot of poten there's a lot of uh, potential for damage in between being brown bears we know they're big, they're powerful, they got sharp teeth. We know what happens if they come in conflict with a human that you know, in, in a bad situation. And they're, and they, we've seen terrific wounds on bears. So th I believe that there's a, they have, they've developed strategies to keep from hurting each other. And one of these is being able to signal another bear, their intentions through body movements. I'd like to be able to know about, uh, there's lots of vocalizations going on and a lot of the, uh, the, the, the body movements that they are, uh, communicate, communicative signals that they're showing to the other bear are are stereotyped and that's what we're trying to find out can and you give us an example of a very very subtle yeah. communication and then okay. one that is just like right there in your face what what would be the two extremes of those communications that are that are fairly obvious uh well not walking directly towards you trying to avoid you that would be the first one 
Another and then what be, would that be? Is that a submissive? Is that what is that? That just means to if you if you document if you if you find one bear walking toward avoiding another bear walking around it or something like that, and it doesn't. You have to look at what's going to happen next and what the final result is going to be. If it doesn't result in con- confrontation, you might look at the, uh, the the bear moving away from the other bear. It's just that that's that's enough just to tell me I'm not going to try to push you out of your uh, fishing spot or try to make you move or try to be show interest in your cub or something like that so that 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 would be a signal and then you there's a certain amount of body orientation which is uh st- is sort of stereotypical they might move sideways or uh you know maybe look away or not look directly at you i don't it's looking is hard to tell because you can't tell if they're really seeing anything that's hard to uh, objectify and sometimes you look at it afterwards if then you can watch it out here today if one bear's fishing and you know here say here comes what are we foggy or uh, one bear comes in and uh gwen's been chasing him all day long every every time comes down he might come down there and uh get across the river from but he's, he'll sit down sit that sit down sort of i think it shows a little bit of submission and i'm not going to pursue the i'm not going to charge across the river and try to drive you out of there so it can, can be th- that blatant sometimes after a, uh they've had an encounter one bear might sit or lie down you might see a uh shake themselves and that's a, like a body shake they'll do that sometimes when they're stressed out or go over and pee or something like that but the, the, probably the body shake and the peeing doesn't have any social uh it's not really signaling anything to you but uh th- just certain ways you hold your body and there's sometimes tensing of the face you see that and we were, we're all talking about it and we can never quite get this clear thing whether you're showing your canines is a is, is a better deal but when when they're sitting there and we hear all that noise and the two females are going and we used to call that a drawing display and that's sort of a medium intensity display and we've noticed they're not touching each other if one of those bears touched each other it might it might uh you know trigger a, a response on the other bear and they might get into it a little bit more but they're by their head, their posture, their head, and where they're turning their head sideways or anything, that is can all be statistically shown to have signal value. In other words, it's signaling the other bear your intentions. But with it, it's going scent communication, which we don't know anything about. With it is vocalizations, <laughs> which we don't know really know what they mean. So there's other things going. And I used to do this thing with when two bears at McNeil. McNeil, you can see more encounters than about an hour than you can see in other places in a day or a week but uh you could just see you, you could see what they were doing to each other and they're sort of circling cowboy walking which is you know slowing down everything they slow down their to make their intentions more clear uh you can you can just see it goes on that's one of the great the great things about mcneil and they're always communicating yeah. it's one of the things you realize particularly yeah. when you see them in concentration yep. like that yep. And just the, the the level of dialogue that is is pretty constant. Like they're they're excellent communicators. They're always putting out there. They wear their their feelings on their sleeves in a lot of ways. If they had sleeves, <laughs> but uh, and it, it 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 is constant. And I think where where you know a lot of human bear conflict stems from miscommunication because one one party's speaking bear, one person one. And then the humans are speaking human. And like the one thing that always comes to, to mind in this situation is, you know, when you're looking at bear attack statistics and a good portion of them are moms with cubs, they always say, don't mess with mom and cubs. And then, you know, we've got all these 
we'll call them case studies, where in a lot of ways the, the moms and cubs are the most tolerant, you know, the, whether they're seeking refuge in proximity to humans, things like that. Well, how, on one hand, can a demographic of bears be the most dangerous, and yet, you know, we'll cite all these instances where they are the most tolerant. And it's the human behavior in between. And so I think about, you know, some of the instructions that have been given in bear encounters where, you know, a mom with cubs comes out and you dig back into your brain. Oh, what did I read in that pamphlet? Uh, or see, see in that video and they say, oh, make yourself look big and wave your arms. Well, what are you communicating to that mother bear? You're saying, I'm coming for your cubs. Uh, you're going to get squished. And, you know, you got to put yourself in the mind of that mother bear. And so what? do what does she want me to do or to be and she i think wants you to be ambivalent to her presence she wants to be ignored in a lot of ways and you know when once once you communicate that you know whether it's just not elevating your energy whether it's you know shifting your body orientation whether it's you know kind of looking, I mean, keeping them out of the corner of your eye, but, you know, averting your gaze kind of thing. And she's going to be reading those things. And you can almost see, you know, the tension wash away. If it's a little, oh, it kind of, is it going to go up or is it going to go down? Where's the energy in that interaction going to go? And you're always trying to get that energy back down to that baseline comfort level. level. Yeah, where everybody's chill. One thing we did with, that I've done all the time I watched because it's a fairly simple thing to do. We were trying to see, and, and it, it was, there, was, it, there was no uh, papers on it or anything when I started, whether bears live in a hierarchy. Because a hierarchy is one thing that happens in animal populations that, you know, makes them existence easier and they, uh, it minimizes aggression between them. Again, we have this big animal that's capable of killing each other, killing cubs and everything else like that. And you can document, and you can really document it at McNeil, there's top bears and bottom bears. And you can move within this linear hierarchy, move from change places. It might change from year to year. It could even, doesn't change too much from situation to situation, but there's, it's easy to see. And, and if what I did is I divided the bears that I saw into sub-adult groups, uh, single females, females with cubs, and large males. And each one of these groups has a hierarchy within inside itself. And, you know, obviously the, the big males are dominant over, you know, mothers with cubs, everybody on down. But uh, that's one thing that I've always looked for. And McNeil is, the different people have done the same thing at McNeil, and it's proven itself over. See, these bears know each other. <laughs> they recognize each other. They know where, the, where they are in the hierarchy. And we can never forget that these mothers and cubs, keeping their cubs for two and a half, three and a half years, you look at a wolf, how long a wolf pup stays with its mom, might end up being in a pack, it might have to disperse and go somewhere else. Bears keep their young with them for a really long time, and an old wolf is 10 or 12 years old, an old lion's 10 or 12 years old, old bear, if somebody didn't shoot it, which is probably the limiting factor in these bear populations around here, 30, 30, 30, 35 years old. So there's a lot of experience that goes into that. And I was talking to Drew about this with, uh, uh, I've always interested in whether the relationships that are formed when, when these cubs or when the, like sub, a lot of sub-adults are intensely social with each other. Sometimes in the fall, we'll see, you know, four or five sub-adults 
in a group together, all sort of hanging out and playing with each other and stuff like that, whether this exists through their lives. And this would be like a, there's, it always appeared to me, some big males at McNeil would play, bears do play. I mean, this is a really, observing play is a really good way to see the, sort of get inroads to their personalities and, and uh, you know, behavior. But the uh, who plays with who? It's always seems that some of those big bears would play with just, they just had a handful that they would play with and they would never play with other big bears. It may be because those other bears were dominant. Maybe they, their personalities were that they were cantankerous or like were very aggressive. But it always seemed to me that these think this stuff is going on. And it's just a, by watching who plays with who and it's a, a good way to make inroads to it. And obviously the way to do it is to get the genetics from the, from the cubs right away and see who they are and then get it later on but we haven't figured out it nobody's brave enough to run up and pull this hair out of the spares <laughs> you know, so we're working on it though i think i think that'll come <laughs> so two things with that you see that a lot drew you do a lot with polar bears right so you see adult male polar bears playing a lot too do you notice that same sort of thing where certain males won't play with other males or or do you well, and on some level, their personalities have to be inclined to play. And but you look at places like McNeil River, or you know, I'm when I do stuff in Churchill, and that's you know, play, one of the things that Churchill's known for is is watching the big males spar. And you know, you read these things, and they'll say, "Oh, this is how they they." You know, they're they're prepping for mating season so that they're all in good fighting, whatever, you know, it's <laughs> something somebody had an idea. And I think like when you go to places like that, like Churchill, we've switched over to polar bears now just for a second. We'll come back to brown bears. But why do those bears play? It's because they're bored. Like they've come back to the same place their entire lives. Polar bears don't live quite as long. As, as brown bears, but they come back, they see the same bears, whether they're siblings, whether they're whatever cohort, you know, they came up in, it's their, you know, the same kids they went to elementary school with and middle school and high school. You come back, you see the same bears, you're bored. And, you know, they're, they're, you say, oh, well, why, why are they wasting calories? And I think play is an important part of their lives because, you know, they're highly intelligent animals. They're making life and death decisions on a daily basis. I think they're going to see some of the same physiological benefits of play that we do. You know, there's going to be an endorphin release. There's going to be it passes the time kind of thing. You can only sit there and eat so much kelp before you got to <laughs> <laughs> do do something to, to alleviate the boredom. And I think about one time I was at uh, McNeil River, and it's kind of a study in two different days, and it was just – I don't remember how many bears were in the in the falls, but it was in the 40s or 50s. There were a lot of bears there. And it was a beautiful day. Bears were catching fish at will. Like it was just, I think we even, you know, took off our jackets. <laughs> it was that nice. We took off our jackets. It's July. And all of a sudden the play bout started down here. And then another one over here and another one over there. And pretty soon there were just play bouts going on through the whole middle zone of the river. And I remember there were two, there was a very old bear and then an old bear sitting next to each other. And they had their, their butts up next to each other in, in this little pool nearby. And they would both like scan and look around. And then th when their heads came together, they would do this little jaw spar thing for, you know, just a little bit. And then they'd go back to scanning and looking for fish or whatever. And then every time their heads were in, they'd kind of, you know, jaw spar again. 
And then just a couple days later, those catch rates dropped. And suddenly those same bears that had been playing were, you know, at each other's throats. They were com then competing for a resource. But at that moment in time, it was just like all the stars aligned. It was perfect. Nobody had a care in the world. We're just doing cannonballs off the high dive. Like <laughs> it's, it was just a fun, everybody was having fun that day. Yeah, they, they sure play a lot more after, after they're well fed. I mean, I think that trigger, that triggers play the one they're, it's again, it's just competition. But when they're full, we always used to say that fed bears are happy bears and, and happy bears are the ones that play. But there's extremes in play. That's the, this is hard to believe. But one time I saw a big male playing with a sub-adult. And the sub-adult was allowed to grab the, the big bear and just go like that with him. And the, and the sub-adult was a quarter of the size of the big male. So what the hell is going on there? It doesn't, it doesn't fit in with, any, with anything else. The big males are supposed to be, you know, chomping down and, you know, getting them out of the way or right. giving them good bites. But it, it, ha it happened, you know. And I, I don't know why. It's just, it, I think that's why it, what keeps us all coming out here to seeing those oddities that you hadn't seen or seeing all the bears play at one time at the falls or. Right. And you've been and doing this for 50 years and I, you continue I, to come out because you feel like there's, there's so much more to learn, right? Yeah. And it's just, yeah, there's just, it's, 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 it, you're looking for the oddities and I, I sure don't know. I, you know, a lot of the things I thought of in, in, in when I was, you know, 20 years old, I, uh, we, because we were, had to write a thesis and stuff, stuff like that. I had to, you know, really, itemize them down and try to come up with statistics and everything else like that. And some of it's not, it's, it's, I, 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 I think I've become much broader in my views right now. A lot of the visual signals, you know, that I thought were, you know, that really meant something they, they, they did, but they're uh, sort of maybe broader in their meaning and they're not quite as concise as I tried to make them through writing definitions and, and that sort of thing. And I'd love to know more about the sound things and the scent communication there's, unless I missed it, there's never been a, a good paper written in scent communication in bears. And that's so evident, right? Because the minute a bear gets, gets up and goes to another spot, if another bear crosses that spot, they stop and smell it. Everybody right? wants a photo of a bear's eyes because that's the intensity. But I always like taking pictures of a bear's nose because that's the, that's the most important part. <laughs> right. Tell me, this is my, my thought process, and I just want to know if you guys think it's correct. And I think it's if it is correct, it's it's just good for the general population just to know. We're talking a lot about coastal brown bears. The the behavior and the communication is different with the coastal brown as opposed to an inland grizzly. Or, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences too, right? And is that true? Is that a, a good general statement? Because I feel like if I ran across a bear in Denali... While I'm going to act very similar, there's other things that I'm going to be... I'm just going to be a little bit more attentive in with an inland grizzly as compared to a brown bear that's got plenty of salmon to eat and there's absolutely not a care in the world. For me, that just breaks down to tolerances, you know, and those bear, the bears here are used to dealing with things at, at super close proximity and in a lot of ways, their communication systems might be considered more refined they can communicate more nuanced things because they practice it. But, you know, you think about, we do, we do break down the grizzly bear versus brown bears as a geographic, but, you know, there are all these 
There's no reason. There's no difference. A bear could get up. A grizzly bear could wake up in the morning, walk over the mountain, and be a brown bear by <laughs> the evening. They have to be able to to speak both languages. I kind love of thing. that. And it's just the it's the tolerances and people. It bugs me when people say that uh, inland grizzlies are more aggressive. And it's not a matter of being aggressive. It's a matter of being less tolerant. It's just not the right word to describe uh, their behavior. So the things that might put off a bear or annoy a bear at you know, cl- close proximity here, you just have to think of that, that level, that personal space bubble is just that much bigger in an area that doesn't have the same resources. They don't have their lunch swimming right to them kind of thing. Um, and so it's it's just a matter of, of tolerances and understanding the difference and then adjusting. And then and always I think people have bears have more respect for people than we think. And whether we deserve it or not. And um, you know, one of the things you always get is well, you show a picture of a person and a bear sitting on a river and they'll say, Well, if that if there were salmon weren't there, you know, that bear would eat your head off or whatever. And it's, it's like, there's still, it's the dialogue. You're having a conversation. It's not just like black and white. Like salmon is not the deciding, Oh, there are no fish in this river. We better get out of here kind of thing. Like it is like every, every bear encounter is a conversation. People want it to be black and white. You read through the checklist. I see a bear. I do this. But in reality, it's a conversation that's going back and forth maybe five or six times before the situation is resolved to, to both parties' liking kind of thing. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It really, really is. That's good a description as I've ever heard. I think that's really true. But I, I think you get back to these u- utilize, utilizing uh, – certain food food resources the way the bears have to congregate here and it may be the coastal bears are used to being with each other at shorter distances and they're having more more social interactions than a uh, interior bear but one of the bears i one of the books i read when i was starting out because i did a lot of reading because i didn't have anybody to talk to about bears i was in vermont uh was uh, andy russell and he that's the first book that well, you know, Mills, and there's a lot of old-timers that went out and wandered around with bears and stuff. But Andy Russell, he, he was in in uh, in Canada. He's in Canada. I was going to say Glacier. He wasn't in Glacier Park. But he, I guess he was in Banff and Jasper and in, in the Rockies up there. And he had a horse business. And his, his, his son, Charlie Russell, who just recently, well, passed away about 10 years ago or so. In Cam- he, he had pet bears in Kamchatka. He, uh, uh, Andy Russell... They, I think he sort of decided he's going to walk up and see what the bears are going to do. And uh, he, he he doesn't have any, he never got hurt or anything else like that. And I read that and well, I think, man, this guy's doing it, you know, and this is what he did. And it's interior bears. And it was sort of a, a lesson to me. I read that before I went in the field. So I wasn't entirely clueless just because I'd never seen a bear before. I read Andy Russell and I read, read George Schaller and, you know, look at what George Schaller did with gorillas before George Schaller went out there. Everybody thought if gorilla comes up and does that, it's going to be, you're going to have a, be sorting yourself out. For, and, and Schaller went and sat down and gorillas came up and displayed at him and, and that was it. It was, this, it was the same deal. So, yeah, I read Schaller. I, I, that was sort of my Bible that I, all his tigers, the tiger and the deer. And the, what are, what are your other favorite bear books? 
Oh. I, it's hard for me to read some bear books because you like you read them and you're like, uh, I, I won't. Re- I don't read very many modern ones. I'll tell you that. I tell you the one that I like the best, and I might like it just because it's got a lot of Derek stories in it. But uh, Dominion of Bears. Oh yeah. I always. That's if somebody asks me what uh, what bear book to read. That's the one I. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's do is is maybe over the next day or so because we're going to be together for a few more days. You could just. Them think about that and write yeah. down that list because I'd love to put okay. it in the show notes. So anybody that is interested in okay. bears, they're going to be a good resource for. We can up somebody. the quality of what people are reading. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sherry is Sherry has been right where we are right now. Except she had this. We didn't have a boat that day. Yeah, she was. She, unfortunately, she just passed away. This is really sad. Suddenly, it was a really sad deal. But uh, yeah, there's some good books out there. But you know, that's I'd like to say that I wasn't totally naive when I when when I started out. But there's a, and here again, I stand to be corrected because I I try to stay up with the literature, and I, I, I the truth of the matter is I'm not reading as much as I should. But a lot of bear attacks take place in in areas. More bear attacks take place in in areas where the, which the fishing game deems areas of low uh, bear density like the interior away from the fall. They don't seem to happen as much in areas of high bear density, like Coast Kodiak is one, Kodiak, uh, Kenai Peninsula, and uh, Alaska Peninsula all probably have pretty similar bear densities. Bear-human interactions don't seem to take place as much there as they do in the interior. So whether there's really something to, you know, bears getting along, learning, about short distances, increased socialization in areas like we are right now, it, whether this is different from a bear in the Brooks Range. I don't know, but it, it sort of proves up that way sometimes. That's well, what, that's what Hec- I think Hectel is. It's Hectel the one that put together that yeah. paper, and it was like 85% of them take place in low-density areas, and other 15% take place in high-density areas. So I think there's probably something to that, and I would you know, jump to the next step, which John Hechtel, which I'm, I don't know if you've ever interviewed him or anything like that. I, you know, it's scientifically, it's really hard to jump to the next thing and say, this is the reason why that is. But we can come up with a concrete figures on, you know, where bear mullings have taken place. And we, th- certainly the fishing game knows where high density and low density areas. So that's, you know, something that w- that's, that's a concrete scientific evidence that we can come up with we just we'd be hard-pressed to say it's because of the increased socialization in the in the you know shared food areas or sedge flats or whatever that we could think that and it, it to me that seems that logical that you could go to the next place but it's it's it that's conjecture which we say is our favorite <laughs> game out here is endless conjecture well and the so. one the one common thread in all bear attacks is uh there are humans there <laughs> like that's that's the yeah, every single one of them there was a there was a person involved and you know they do look at it and you look at the statistics on it and yeah it would be fascinating to get john hechtel on maybe we could do another one of these and do a bear we could get we something. could get argument we could get good argument going probably yeah. so <laughs> but john john morton who is a very accomplished biologist at the Kenai Refuge, Fish and Wildlife Service Refuge. He calls this the urban interface, you know, and it's a, whether it's kayakers or campers or anything else, like we're increasingly encroaching on, on bear territory all the time. And, and, and if this is going to happen, we're going to have more adverse, you know, encounters just from surprise or whatever. It, I would like to sit out here. If you watch how f- 
uh, fast these bears are walking across the sedge flats or the mud flats out here. They're going, dun, dun. bears walk slowly for a variety of reasons, <laughs> I think. One is they don't want to run off any weight gain because the name of the game is get as fat as you can in the summertime because you're not going to eat in the wintertime. And the other thing is if you watch two, if you watch bears, you know, doing this visual signals or whatever you want to call it's going on, they're doing it slowly. And if you want to really minimize your safety in bear country, don't walk fast. Bears do not walk fast, and they, they don't like to blunder into each other just because of the potential for damage, and it's usually they're, they're going to go through a whole different thing than we do. And <laughs> if you could just get – that's why mountain bikers are running into bears on trails and stuff like that. Bears aren't – they're not wandering through the countryside you know they're not sniffing the flowers they're trying not to lose weight and they're trying not to run into anybody else and they're probably leaving scents for scent markings on the trails and but bears that the whole thing is set up their whole society which i certainly don't understand all, all parts of it's set up to minimize this aggression not hurt each other continue you know to, to go to to exist but I just you know bears one foot after another foot and they're going down there. They're not. There's no, there's no rush. And if if people get out in bear country, that's go slow. You know, if and if you're going to be on a bear trail, bears use trails. And the bears are using trails, and they're now we know that they have scent glands in their feet. And they're leaving information for each other on those trails, and they they could probably tell each you know when the last one went went by, and who it was, and what he. They don't know if they can tell what he was thinking, but. Uh, <laughs> what do they say that the the sensitivity of the bears? Oh yeah, our bear, our our nose is to a dog's as the dog's nose is to a bear. They they certainly have a the ability to looks like physiological to to, to smell pretty well. So. so two things, and then we can wrap up just because we probably have to get out in the field. But the first thing is is anytime I go in the bear country to film, I would say eighty percent of the time I'm always with one of you guys. Because that level of understanding that you guys bring to the table is so valuable for me as a, a filmmaker or a photographer or whatever it is. For one, for protection, but not protection like we're getting bombarded, but just watching and, and keeping eyes. You know, when you get your eye in a viewfinder, you're not always paying attention to what's behind you. And secondly, I just learned so much by being out there with you guys and just... And, the time that you get to spend is invaluable. So my number one recommendation, and we're going to follow up this podcast with another podcast where we're going to talk about opportunities to get out in the field, but it's highly recommended to go on a trip with with you guys especially. But if you are going to come to Alaska, go with someone that is very familiar with bears and can read bears because you'll learn a ton. You'll feel very safe. You'll have the time of your life, and it's incredible. Secondly, we, we talked a lot about home ranges and protecting areas and and the board of game and all that i think the number one thing one thing we can do is educate people right so people got to be aware of what the problems are what what we consider a problem other people don't you know but what what are what can people do what can we do as photographers filmmakers environmentalists conservationists whatever to move forward to make those positive steps to mo to hopefully get some of the home ranges encapsulated or protected or whatever what what is that what what does that look like and and then how can people that aren't necessarily alaska residents that don't have a direct voice 
what can they do to make things better or just help educate? I think on a basic level is go bear viewing. <laughs> like really, like it is in in the world in which we live in, the dollars and cents, like in, in you know, the bear viewing industry you know, creates all these jobs, generates all this local money. You know, we're paying mortgages, we're paying off boats, we're doing whatever, you know, that is, you know, come experience it and then um you know tell the story you know like and then that that does you know it increases the value to the overall economy but it also um we're we're in the long-term process of, of changing people's opinions of bears and so it takes people coming out and and having first-hand positive first-hand experiences that can then be disseminated so you because you, you know anytime there's a bear attack or things like that you're you mean, we're still talking about the bear attack 20 years ago kind of thing and yet that's the first thing that jumps to people's mind and we need to have more positive bear experiences to to change the way we collectively think about bears develop the appreciation yeah well guys thanks so much for being on the show it's like huge and if we can get your list of books or even just a couple i think okay. there's a huge part of the audience that would love to have that okay that resource and and same with you drew you you consume tons of stuff like that so any nice. anything that you have that we can throw out there would be awesome well should we go watch some bears let's go watch some bears <laughs> thanks a lot. that was a good place to stop You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the best.